me the opportunity to look at the book yet again, which is great, and, um, and to think about it. And uh, first, I wanted to start off by saying that I think that um, the book makes an extraordinary contribution to uh, scholarship around contemporary art in general, uh, most specifically, of course, around the category of contemporary South African art. But I think it's a book that will have a life in terms of setting um, uh, a series of questions or mobilizing a series of questions which will be really interesting for people to engage with irrespective of where art is made. So one of the things that I found very generative and interesting about the book um, was the way in which it is so informed by a literature that emerges out of a deep immersion uh, in art as it's produced you know, everywhere and in many, many places, and indeed in text that's produced everywhere and anywhere, at the same time as being so completely engaged with the particularity um, that is South Africa. And it's rare to find uh, a book that can do both things simultaneously. So you feel you're reading the best kind of art criticism that could be written about any work produced anywhere, at the same time as feeling so completely um, immersed in the particular debates, tensions, anxieties, fears, neuroses, paranoias, etc., that come out of this extremely fraught uh, uh, place with its, you know, every place has a difficult history, but there's something about South Africa uh, which makes those historical um, patterns and, and experiences um, just so spectacular, really. And you deal a lot with that idea of the, of the, the spectacular on the one hand and the ordinary um, on the other. So, um, so that's just the first thing to say about, about the book as a book, and um, we welcome it, and um, thank you for it, really. It's, it's a gift to all of us, uh, and we will be reading it and engaging with it and uh, debating with it for a very, very long time. It, I think it, it will transform the way we think about certain things. So that's, that's my first um, uh, point I, I wanted to make. So. It's, it's quite interestingly arranged. It's arranged around fairly um, uh, monographic essays that mostly emerge from an encounter with an exhibition or a particular display of a work of art that you come across. So it's 24, is it? 24 encounters yes. is the way in which I would describe it. 24 encounters with an artist in relation to an installation of some kind. You either stumble on something in an art fair somewhere or you're faced with an exhibition somewhere. There's a, there's a moment that produces the writing. So maybe we should start just in that kind of descriptive way. If you could tell us a little bit about what motivates you as a writer and how certain things grab you out of all the hundreds and thousands of things you might see in any one year. What is it that, or two years, or however many you've built this over, what is it that makes these 24 um, artists come into visibility and, and how does that work as a writing practice for you and as a practice which thinks of the range between writing and looking and reading? Um, firstly, again, um, thank you for being here. Um, in terms of the questions that Tama is asking, um, the first one, let's go to the beginning, why the book is, has a sense of locality but at the same time it's a strong sense of globality. Because, I mean, it's called in the world, so, but that world's a complex space. It's a world that um, it can be um, local, it can be regional, it can be national, it can be continental, in this case European, or in my case African, but it's also emphatically global. And um, for me, one cannot live and think without interconnecting 
these um, various moments and dimensions and aspects which impact upon all our individual lives. And you may recall Edith Said's um, notion of worldliness. And worldliness is not about an effete cosmopolitanism. You know, this is not what I mean by worldliness. Worldliness is a commitment to life everywhere. A sense of what um, maybe Paul Gilroy would have called a, a planetary humanism. So the biggest sense of where we belong and to whom we belong. Because the other thing about my work, it's very much driven by empathy. I'm an empathic thinker. I mentioned on Tuesday, on Wednesday, was it Wednesday? Yes. The importance of Martin Buber in, in the way that I think and, and work through. And the, my dynamics in relation to the artists I work with is very empathic. I engage with the sensations and moods and feelings of the works generally. I try not to get too caught up in the personal data or backstories of a given artist. I try to make the, the work do the speaking and my encounter with the work do the speaking. And then I somehow find ways to get that encounter and richen and deepen that encounter by bringing in, well, some of my other big passions, which is primarily philosophy um, and primarily, admittedly, predominantly Western philosophy and primarily um, philosophy of the 20th century, though I do venture into other spheres as well. And what I try to do is share, so the thing is, these, you mentioned the word gift, Tama, because, I mean, these writings are acts of generosity, they're acts of, of of leasing myself in the world and com contributing and sharing with others. But not what's in my mind in any narcissistic and obsessive-compulsive way, but what is it in my mind that I imagine is in all our minds? And uh, so, for example, um, one of the artists that I deal with um, is called Kate Godkins. And she, what interests me about her painting um, is that many people examine her work as an embodiment of whiteness in Africa. But what interests me is not simply the, 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 the category of whiteness in Africa, but how a particular artist manifests that state, that state of being literally on the edge of the, of the world, about to be blown over, a sense of inexistence, non belonging. But you know, what I also worry about these categories, you know, why, and what I was saying to you, why I think I, I pissed off a lot of people on Wednesday, because I loathe categorical imperatives at the best of times. Now, something like Kate Godkin is going to be deemed a white South African artist. But if you sit down and speak to the person, the woman, and you get certain details, for example, the fact that her mother was adopted, that she was adopted. So for example, perceptions about what you think about, for example, white privilege, or white comfort, this flies out of the window. You know, you start thinking, okay, now what do we do with these kinds of sense of belonging and not belonging? How does a person inhabit that space? And I think there's a certain kind of sloth, it's a moral sloth that comes with systems of interpretation which try to contain and explain a way of being, in this case, Kate Godkins, through her race. Um, and what I'm saying is something about what this particular woman does and just how she expresses that sense of inexistence is so subtle and so evocative and so moody and so sensuous and so interestingly and disturbingly troubling without announcing a problem that you just find your way slipping into that state, into that being. Um, but this is just one artist. The artists are all entirely different, so I have to inhabit entirely different worlds. So what's um, the process? You, you, after you, you see, you, how does it, what do you think is the navigation between what you know before, what mm -hmm. you see in the confrontation, what you then do in terms of research and mm -hmm. reading, right. and then how you build the argument 
in, in the writing. Can you tell us a little bit about the practice okay. of writing? Okay. Well, it's always the encounter with the artwork. That is absolutely it. Um, I've just given an example just before this talk. I had Tamara and I were talking about the encounter I've had um, in my visits to museums here in, in London. And by far the most intriguing painting I saw was from the 1700s by Anthony van Dyck. I'm suddenly obsessed. All I want to do is find out more about the man and, and how he painted and why he painted and, and see as many works as I humanly can and then write through my own sensation of the significance of that portraiture at that time for us and now. And the reason why it's significant is because it's so potently human. And this is the key thing. It's so hard to capture the human in ways that connect itself with other people because people look at portraits and they see figures, types, castes, economies, you know, businesses, whatever sort of apparition that's usually material attached to the person. But what about that amorphous state that makes us human? And what makes some painters so skilled at capturing it? And my conviction is that there are other paintings in the same period, literally next to them, and they're flat and dead. There's nothing there. But you look at that and you go, wow. Now how do you explain that? My hair, this is the thing, how does it work? This is how it works. Literally, my hair go, uh, goes on end, and I just know that I'm onto something. And when I'm writing, so the research happens intuitively. It happens because there's a large backstory, in my case, it's an aesthetic theory and philosophy, because I tend to wander amongst many mediums. So I get a sense of where I need to, what I need to pull in and find an encounter. So basically, it's a stumbling and an encounter. It's very much, in the, I think, very much in the same sort of rhythm and pattern as sort of uh, Walter Benjamin. It's the same rhythm, basically. It's about stumbling into insight. Um, it's a, sort of a wakefulness to the incidental. Um, and the surprise of a beautiful sentence or a compelling word or, you know, something that will bring you in. So I don't write in any consecutive um, 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 way with a, with, a, with a definite outcome. I don't think I'm a great investigative reporter. I'm a terrible historian. My, my great fear is history because I know it's important, but I never seem to be able, I always got to be at A-levels, you know, during mm -hmm. my whole year, I could never get an A, you know what I mean, just failed. So I knew that's not where I was going to go, so literature drew me more, and philosophy and aesthetics drew me more, and I felt more comfortable in that habitat than in the, the, the world of history as a means to understand an artist's work. But what's quite interesting in reading you is, of course, that your writing is so made up of the writings of others and your reading of others, and I was amazed by that because in many of the books you cite or books I've read at some time in my life, but I, 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 as I was reading you, I was thinking, how do you remember, like you read, you've gone from Tiju Cole to um, whoever, I'm just trying to remember all the different things, and I'm think, thinking, well, you know, I read that essay, and I read this essay, but do you retain all of this? I mean, do you have that kind of retentive memory for text, so that at the moment that you need it, some text from the past emerges for you, and you think, ah, you know, so-and-so, uh, Hulebeck said that, or so-and-so said that, and I can use this yes, here. Yes, yes. And then I so potter, and then I potter around. When I write, I rock, and I speak. I speak the sentences, because for me, it's, the, it's, it's, it's a living organism mm. that I'm trying to, to create. And then, you know, suddenly it'll hit me, and then I'll potter around, and I'll be running around. And my books are not in any order mm. formation. So it'll probably take me an hour or 45 minutes to find a damn book. And, um, and then while I'm finding it, and this is what I love, and this is something that Roland Barthes talks about as well, the whole notion of, of, um, of, of um, the sequences, with the, the alphabetical sequence, for example, an index, how 
the letter A will lead you to so many surprisingly different things. And you'll move from one tangent to the other tangent. And that wonderful meandering way of discovering knowledge, um, rather than amassing it in any authoritative way, is for me been a much more pleasurable exercise. Quite physical and embodied. Yeah, it's physical and embodied, but memory does play, thank goodness I still have it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But memory does have an important role to play in the process. But also because, you know, I don't know how you read, but I, I read with incredible passion and I reread certain people over and over and over and over. And suddenly it's rather like, I suppose, in the, in the realm of prayer or ritual, it's something you do, but reading can be that as well. And that allows you to retain. And this is the thing, the, the, the memory muscle, I come from a generation that still has it. Um, so yeah, the thing is because, because <laughs> we, because I mean, when I, when I open a class, I open the first week of a class, I take up a, uh, a notepad and a pencil. And I say to my students, this is all you need. Okay, if you have a notepad and a pencil, and then you can go into the internet and transcribe whatever you want. It's the transcription that allows the memory to operate, allows it to actually hold fast to the knowledge. You can't click something and hope to remember anything. So the key thing is that muscle, which, which, which that sort of, like another kind of ambulatory sort of operation. It's a form of walking. Thinking is a form of walking. And now some people walk very pathetically, other people walk very purposefully. And this will reflect in the way that they write as well. And I write in a way that's rather like what Roland Barthes called the Z, is the letter of deviance. The letter so of deviance. deviance. The letter Z. Because basically it just moves and it wanders and it stumbles upon new opportunities. And I just hope when I write that it will be engaging enough for the reader. But I do write, not with a conscious sense of a reader, but with a hope that somebody can actually have the same sense of wonder and surprise that I have in the moment of encounter and the moment yeah. of writing. It's really interesting because there is something often quite lyrical and meandering about the writing, but at the same time there, there is also a kind of polemical um, <laughs> thrust to the writing. And so I'm interested just in going along a pathway with you um, down some of those polemical um, you know, energies, please, no, I'm, I'm fine, uh, you know, that, that um, manifest themselves in the writing and perhaps teasing them out in relation to particular works because, I mean, one of the things is that works often get subsumed under polemic and they come to illustrate polemic. And one of the joys of reading you is the fact that whilst there is strong polemic and you are engaging with political issues and theoretical and ethical questions, one never feels that the work is there to serve the argument. But the argument in terms of, uh, of polemical and political positions is, is, is clearly articulated. So it'd be nice to just uh, play a little bit and for you to sort of just talk a little bit about, um, you know, how this works in particular instances. Now, um, can I ask somebody just to switch the, the light up? It's in that corner, so if you wouldn't mind. Thank you. Um, just so we can see the screen. Uh, no, you don't turn both off, but at least, no, oh, yeah. We, is that? Everybody's now in the dark. Okay, so um, one of the, we of course can't see our notes anymore, but maybe that's a good thing. Um, one, of the, um, one of the kind of polemical things that you really talked about quite a lot on Wednesday night, and which starts your book off, yeah. is Ed Young's uh, word piece that was at the Armory Show in, in New York, and um, you know, together with other pieces that were quite controversial, particularly because at the Armory Show, um, as you described, there was a, you know, there's a, a whole interest in African art and the whole way that African art has now become a kind of marketized, commoditized right. commercial right. thing. Who is African? Who's not allowed to be African? Can you be a white African, etc.? Some of those questions recur yes. throughout the book. 
what yes, is an African, and what is you know is African um, overdetermined by race, or mm. is it? How can we navigate Africanness mm. from yes. different perspectives, from Afropolitanism to Afro <clears throat> pessimism to white Africanness, etc. So, um, it seemed to me that this work really targets that yes. set of questions. Yes. So I'd just like to hear a little bit more from you about those. The first uh, spot of a smile in the work came up. Um, but the thing is I used, I chose to make this the opening chapter in my book because there was nowhere else to put it. You can't smuggle Ed Young in the middle of a book. And I don't think you want to end <laughs> a book with, the, with this level of provocation. So what I was trying to do um, is examine how he uses words. And in this case, as Tamar rightly says, it challenges a lot of, of certain, not just essentialist visions of Africa, but programmatic and pragmatic visions of Africa, mm. or worse, continued exploitative um, interpretations and uses and abuses of Africa. So these are the things that Ed Young sets up in a, in a work that has a number of, um, of um, of, of charges or barbs built into them. Obviously, he's examining the idea of, of contemporary African art and how it's being, as I said, sort of commodified um, today. But he's asking us to look at a number of things. The word, um, I think, is very interesting in this regard because in many ways of the sexualization um, or the rape and rapine associated with the African continent, its body, its people, its women, and at the same time, the essentializing of Africa, again, its body, its people, its women. I'm thinking of hartographers as an example. So what I think he's asking us to do is think very carefully about why it is that Africa at this point has this enormous commercial appeal. Um, I'm not just talking about China's investment in the continent alone, or the fact that Europeans are upset about the fact that there's China's investment in the continent alone, because they are losing out majorly financially. And Britain, particularly right now, is scurrying around Africa, desperately trying to create an Dancing economy. Dancing around Africa. Huh? Dancing around Africa. <laughs> Dancing. <laughs> Literally. That's very funny. That's very funny. But yes, so the thing is, he's, um, so he's provoking these issues, and, and, and the, 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 there's a loadedness to the way in which Ed Young sets up his, his terms. And um, they might seem very simple. By very dismissive, people just say, oh, you know, really anybody can do this. But the point of the matter is not that easy. And to do this in the context of an art fair. And, um, you know, my, my, my partner and I uh, went to 152 today, and it's absolutely appalling. Just about every level. It's the most dull, it's the most, it does such a terrible disservice to the art of the continent. This is what worried me so much. There's so much good stuff. But it was barely present at the fair. And apart from just the 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 the, the setup, the gloom, it seemed to sort of like seemed to be a dustness and a sadness, it seemed to cling to everything. And all it did is reproduce another idea of Africa as a pathology, Africa with a begging bowl. Uh, you know, and if you contrast that, say, to Freeze, which is such a startlingly vibrant um, and dynamic space of the which they are like with alter egos. Now, Africa is then played around in the same way. I, I had this naive impression here was this great thing happening in London. The largest sort of art fair in African arts in the Northern Hemisphere. So I've been selling it. I looked at this thing. It looked like a dingy little bazaar. 
in a, um, in a even a Casbah would be more vibrant and exciting than that Disney event. But the thing is, if what 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 um, what something like Ed Young is trying to do is provoke us about not just the commodification of Africa, but the, its deep history, the deep history. I noticed that a number of colleagues at Time Hours on on Wednesday. Very intriguing, interesting obsessions with economics, 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 economics. That seems to be a key thing. And it's important to bring that out in terms of not just the economics of, of, of trading in African art, but the way in which economics operates, operates right now, the place Africa has within global economics, and the place therein that African art has within that spectrum is worth thinking about. So all of these things, I think, are built into Ed Young's um, provocation. And in terms of his reputation in South Africa, um, I mean, is there a whole discourse around his whiteness? I mean, it must be around white masculinity and who is he and, and what position does he come from? And is this a critical practice or yeah. is he just exploiting this moment? Yes. Or I mean, is, is that the kind of dominant that, discourse around him? That is, that is, a, that is, a, that is a discourse um, that is increasingly attaching itself to him, as it has already to Anton Kahneman. Yeah, who well, I'm going to show you uh, a bit. Now, the thing is, actually. is really, I, what you don't understand, what, what um, the morally prurient will not understand about my brain is basically, I cannot stand this abuse and misrepresentation of artists like Anton Kahneman or Ed Young as being sort of angry white men. I mean, it is so easy, so easy to dismiss and diminish and contain people in such a way. But you fail to understand the complexity of their engagement when you do that. And this is the only reason I, 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 I get upset, because I think people contain others far too rapidly. And we want to get to, to Anton Kahneman. Yeah, we will get to, I mean, Anton, we'll get to Anton yeah. Kahneman in a minute. We can, we can, we can get, we'll go back to Vitway. But, but let's talk about Kahneman, because Kahneman, as you've indicated, is one of the most controversial figures in terms of the way in which he uses humor. Oh, you can say much better than I can what he does to um, to parody so-called white anxiety and play with white anxiety in terms of literalizing its phantasm in a way, isn't it? And, yeah, and you absolutely a, a, a wonderful yeah. chapter in which you discuss it in detail. In fact, Kenemai has got a booth. If I remember, I haven't been yes, to that. Yes, sold out. Everything's at, sold yeah, three, at, four times it's over. It's worth going to the, look at that. And the only interesting one of two interesting booths at the at the at the African uh, Art Fair. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'll show you a few of them because I don't know how many people here are interest, uh, familiar with Kanma. I just put a few up. I mean, this is the kind of thing he does. So tell them how hard we've worked to protect their habitat, say the two anxious people in the tree. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's obviously the sensibility comes very much from Tintin book comics and you know, etc. And this one relates back to the Ed Young, so I thought I'd choose it. Oh no, I'm not just saying it because you're black, I think it's really very, very good. Um, um, so um, if you want to just talk us through yes. a little bit about what you yes. think is interesting there. Well, I think firstly, I mean, there's a certain ruthless honesty about the way that he exposes. We all have a psychopathy, we all have repressions, we all have silences, we all construct narratives, we imagine ourselves, we even imagine our morality. Our morality doesn't exist in us the way as, as, as a bloodstream exists in us. Morality is an acculturated system of protection and where you manipulate others, control and contain yourself and in dream yourself into existence. And liberalism is the most toxic example of exactly that 
the dangers of morality, because it's the most insidious form of it. Now, what um, Anton Kahneman is exposing, of course, is exposing one of the many obvious things here, the appropriation and commodification of the black body, its imagination, its skills, its capacity, and the, the endless humoring of that space. And here, of course, he is saying that. And, uh, uh, oh, no, I'm not just saying it because you're black. I think it's really very, very good. But my point is, he is saying it because the person is black. Yeah, what I, too much, what I mean, it, it, it does, the, the inverse reading suggests that. This is what I'm saying. So it's the tension in the meaning that it, that it, that it split. Now, this is the thing that liberalism suffers from deeply. It's, 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 it's Achilles' heel is its own hypocrisy. And this is the thing which um, Anton Kahnemeyer brilliantly exposes to us. And the, the, the liberalism that he's talking about is the transforming moment in South Africa's democracy and the shift towards what I call a phantom democracy, which exists today. Um, but the tragedy is, and the tragedy of Wanda Wanda B, the students, the, the um, I don't know if you know, Nicole, yeah. Do you know, do you know what this refers to at all? What it refers to, though, I think it was in 2016 when they started burning paintings on the University of Cape Town's campuses. Campuses, and that's what was happening. Um, so that, that literally did the culture of the auto da fe, uh, which is deep in revolutionary movements, but not necessarily a good thing. It's violent, violence is <coughs> inevitable, as somebody like James Baldwin would say. It's also personally fruitless, as James Baldwin would say. And it's a major problem that people don't deal with. People's need to fix something or to do exonerate their pain and free themselves from a burden and to destroy what they see as an embodiment of authority and power in this case for white men. And we know this in terms of universities around the world. Where you go to any major sort of um, institution, you'll see a whole um, gallery of white male sort of deans, etc. So it's dealing with that issue. It's worth just saying a little more for those who don't know that it's part of what became the fallist movement in South Africa, which started with uh, Rose Must Fall about Cecil John Rhodes' statue. And in fact, I put the, the bit boy, Cecil mm. John Rhodes, up here so that one could just think about that. Uh, but then it, 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 it uh, you know, grew into a much bigger student movement called mm. Fallism now. Uh, where, you know, part of which was look in the project of so-called decolonizing the university and the curriculum, the art collections came mm. under attack and you know, works mm. and buildings and statues, etc., were burnt and uh, vandalized mm. and covered up, etc. Yeah. So it's part of that process that, well, Kahnemeyer is obviously satirizing that. But Bitboy is interesting, and humor yeah. is a very important part of your book. A lot of the humor, yes, a lot yes. of the <laughs> artists um, that you're interested in are yeah. very funny. Mm, mm, mm. And you play quite beautifully with different forms of humor and laughter and you know anxious laughter and dark laughter and dark humor and irony and all these sorts of things um you know which it, it's one of the themes i think that runs through the mm. whole book so so um, i loved the description particularly of uh, the madiva bunny-eared thing yeah. so maybe you could tell us okay. a bit about humor in relation Absolutely. to this work and generally yeah. why humor is mm. so engaging for you yeah um, interesting, the, the, the humor, as we know, comes in all forms. Um, it is not simply the parodic or ironic nature of humor, because, for example, these might seem to be the obvious um, um, categories one would associate, say, with the work of Anton Kahnemeyer, or in this case, uh, um, Kaya Bitboy. 
and it's parodic and ironic. At one level, that's true. But another level, parody and irony is merely the means through which to open up something that is unsaid um, or can't be spoken or expressed effectively enough. So it's actually just a conduit. Um, if it's understood as a conduit rather than an end in itself, then it becomes incredibly healthy and productive and life-infusing. Um, but when it simply becomes, an, uh, as we know from irony, some, some a comic made from the sidelines, that there's no sense of intervention or real commitment, you know that's intrinsically dead. We don't have that sense in either Kai Bitboy's work or in, in Anton Kalanier's work. But what the, humor, what the humor is designed to do is to liberate the imagination, free us from hypocrisy, to open us to a truth or a lie, and to make us live better lives, to live more honestly. And do you know how difficult it is to live honestly? It's actually shockingly difficult. And artists, ideally, should, their responsibility is to expose us to the rawness of being, the things that we hide away from all the time. So in this particular work by, by Kaya Bitboy, um, just to, if you don't mind, just to give it the context, this, in the same year he painted this work, a sculpture was, a bronze sculpture was erected in, in the government's um, um, sort of gardens in Pretoria. But then it was discovered that inside the ear of the, of my, the Mandela figure was a rabbit. <laughs> so there was a scandal. And then the, the, there was, a, there was a, the, the, the spokesperson for the ANC, Mogadiri, he said, you know, um, so he objected to the rabbit because Nelson Mandela never had a rabbit in his ear. How did the rabbit get to the in his ear? So the thing is, the artists, two white Afrikaans artists, a rabbit means harsh in Afrikaans, and harsh is also haste. And they had to do the sculpture under enormous pressure. And what was worse, they were denied the privilege of signing the names on Mandela's trouser leg. So they could not leave their signatures. So the only way they could leave a sense of their own history in the trace was in what they thought would be the rabbit. But then the rabbit had to be smelted. But not after a huge controversy went viral. Oh, so it was a bronze rabbit. It's a bronze rabbit. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Kai Boy, like everybody else, picks up on the scandal. And then he does his own take on the rabbit. And now it becomes the bunny rabbit, which becomes the playboy but also becomes this weird, morphed creature. And I, if, do you mind if I can find a sentence from the book? Sure, because go it's, ahead. I could not express it, because it's, ironically, it's one of my favorite sentences in the book. Um, it's just, uh, uh, if I can find it quickly. Yeah. Yes, it's something like, yeah, but I found it. Um, but there is also something ingenious about Bitboy's portrait of Mandela, replete with bunny ears and rouged lips, and, and inspired by Vladimir Trechikov's sepulchral blue palette. Madiba is a light, L-I-T-E, a light response to scandal, um, a playful segue, uh, segueing of an iconic and marmorial figure into a creature fantastical, mildly absurd, endearingly quirky, a heady cocktail of drag, civility, enigmatic mimicry, and buffoonery, which smartly insets, morphs, and reboots Mandela as father and mother and transgendered 
and anthropomorphized figurehead of a nation. So it's the, you know, and there's so much in this painting of what it does to an icon and how it loosens and opens and creates this incredibly dynamic figure. And in many ways, it's, it's, it's the, it's what I believe we should do in the way we respond to people around us or to art, be alert to the potential inside of them. But no, because nobody is one thing. But there's also a kind of irreverence, mm. both in his, um, uh, you know, taking on the icon and in the way that you write. Mm. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's just a weird, you know, negotiation between reverence for art as a space of thinking and feeling, but mm. also a kind of irreverence at the same time, or at least an admiration for those who are irreverent. Which is pretty much the art of it, yeah. um, you know, which is very bizarre. How do you reconcile the, the moral propriety of academia with the incendiary and abrasive and corrosive and dangerous realm of art? You know? yeah. You've got to find a way to move between them. Yeah. And um, I tend to sort of move between these spaces myself when I have to. And I've tried, which raised the issue, Tana, which you mentioned in terms of the 24 artists I chose. Because a lot of those artists are not very well known. And that was a deliberate choice as well. And in fact, the last artist in the book I discovered in my classroom in 2015. I just finished a lecture on Fritz Lang's Metropolis and the class emptied and this young woman remained behind. And she asked if I could look at her android. So I did, and there were some images, and funny enough, another image of bunnies. Um, it was, um, this is an image at the bottom, which I saw on her Android, we can pass it over. You'll see she's taken Coca-Cola bottles and turned them into bunny ears. And she's actually trying to redefine how one markets a global brand. And I looked at these images, and these are her Instagram posts. And I looked at them and I was so astounded by their wit and their intelligence. And then I went off to go and see an art dealer and I was writing a piece on this um, Ghanaian, 80-year-old Ghanaian painter called Abladi Glover. So I'm sitting there making notes and we're having a discussion about this 80-year-old painter. And then in the middle of, of the whole thing, the dealer says, I don't suppose you know any young black artists, Ashraf, I'm looking for a young black artist. I love the way he said it. Some people say the disgustingly insidious way. There's a certain honesty and directness, and I think he's one of the most honest dealers that I've actually come across in Cape Town. He said, yes, I did. In fact, this morning in my classroom. So he went to the Instagram page, and they found the images, loved them, contacted the artist, put a huge amount of money for a booth at the Joburg Art Fair, you know, printed her works. They were all sold, uh, all bought by one single French collector of contemporary African art. Every single thing, the first show. Then it was sold out in Cape Town. Then it was sold out in Miami. Then she was nominated for the Miami Pulse Prize, which she won two years later. Literally in one year, from a classroom and an Instagram page into the world. So there's a sense in which the rapidity, which potentially, in terms of success that can happen in the art world in South Africa, illustrates what um, you know, a high-wire act it is in the world. You know, it's dangerous, but it's exhilarating, and there's an enormous amount of potential. So that's very inspiring, I suppose, why, what it's trying to do then. And by the way, in my essay, I don't talk about my discovery of this artist. That's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in her successes as an individual artist and how she operates and continues to operate. And I also decided to, 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 to conclude with her work because of this. 
I just love this image, which is my original idea for my cover um, was this image. I just love the joy in her arm, the fulsomeness of that quality. Why? Because of the still deeply rooted pathological construction of the black body. You know, and the and, and so this this for me it was it was it was a means through which she she had managed to somehow surpass that space. She was in another generational moment, historical moment. She was the potential, so the millennial potential, so young, black, smart, people who could do things differently. So um, what's interesting about hearing you say that is that, and I felt this very much in reading the book, is there's a huge amount of optimism there for all the, um, for all the shit that's mm, in the world. Yeah. There's an incredible amount of optimism, especially because you are so adventurous in finding artists that other people don't know, and there's this, a lot of young people here, and they're you know, people who are still making their reputations, etc. Um, so it was so, it's so interesting, there's a lot of love, and there's a lot of optimism, there's a lot of joy, and there's a lot of humour. Um, and so I wish some of the people from Wednesday night, where you yeah. played on a very, very different um, uh, tack, could, you know, could actually have heard that, or hopefully they'll get that when they read the book, because um, we got a kind of apocalyptic vision of the world, which yeah. was really, really, um, I think for some of, I don't know, some of the younger people here, well, they want to talk to that, but I know for some of my PhD students, there was a sort of sense that they had of feeling there's no way to move beyond that. So, so it's really argument, interesting. But you, but you listen to the lecture, the argument says there is a way to move. As but I said. It takes an enormous ethical dexterity. Exactly. And also it needed a certain kind of... That's why when I... My first question was about having done all the doom and gloom, you came to redemption, the redemption of art and, and art's capacity to, to do that. But I think it was quite hard to hear that when you read the book, this is what I just want to say, mm. it is so palpable, mm. a book about love and about the love of art and the capacity of art to make an imaginative universe which can affirm the living. No, absolutely. So, but you must yeah. understand, Tama, the lecture I was assigned to give was a lecture on lies. Yeah. So you, I can't put now, you know, sort of ignore the fundamental crux, which yeah. I spent three months working on, yeah. trying to understand how lies operate in the 21st century and how deeply entrenched they are. Yeah. And therefore, when you go through that logic, you realize invariably exposed liberalism is another lie. It just becomes an inevitable fact. And I can't now lie and not yeah, deal with these issues. So yes, you know, my dear wife over there was mortified. <laughs> absolutely mortified. And she said, why could you do that? How could you say that? They don't know how warm you are. I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is, this is, this is just was the, the was the logical consequence of what you gave me to. What's interesting, can I just, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to um, uh, either take or not take responsibility. It's just say it's really interesting because we've had a whole year of people talking about lies. But some of, but they were talked about in many, many ways. Some in terms of the joys of fakery and masquerade, mm -hmm. and some in terms of the potential and possibility of fakery. Mm -hmm. Some in quite life enhanced. So there's many, many ways in which one mm -hmm. can think about what right. it is to play with truth, right. post truth. That's a good point. You know, so 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 you know, I, I, I don't. I think it's fine. I mean, I'm not criticizing you for that, but I'm just saying that it's really interesting when you do get to looking at the book to see this. Um, yeah, a vision of the world which is is, is balanced differently yeah. because there is also um, yeah. there are those those heavy dark 
phrases in the book where we feel what it is that we're dealing with, what is the challenge we're dealing with, particularly in relation to our generation's disappointment about what was hoped to be a moment of transformation. Which, and so we have to manage our disappointment and, um, and then, you know, we have to <laughs> try and, and, and find ways of navigating, you know, a space through that. But tell us another thing. She showed the image of uh, the, the Anton Kahneman image of this autodafé. But the point is what I, what I realized after the ones they talk, which nobody understands, is the world that I'm living in, which is a world in flames. Yeah. I, I am not exaggerating. There's the extent the entire tertiary structure has collapsed in South Africa. Collapsed. It's become utterly dysfunctional. And um, so then you ask yourself, what space is there for thought, for freedom of thought? The tyranny um, that is in place right now is a black tyranny. It's a tyranny, a deep tyranny against anti-intellectualism, a tyranny which, which in a very reductive way inflates black consciousness and black entitlement, a tyranny which conceals the root problem of black experience, which is nihilism and the death instinct, okay? which is actually the root source of all the violence that is erupting across the nation, and wreaking levels of destruction against the bodies of women, the bodies of children, against the bodies of institutions, you know, destroying computer labs, everything. You know, my one colleague was a white South African anthropologist. She refused to pass six students who had patently failed, who then caught her in, in the woman's toilet and beat her to a bloody pulp. She had to have um, plastic surgery. She has subsequently left the country. Now the thing is, this is the root of so much of my despair, which I could not conceal on Wednesday, because you want to talk about freedom, you want to talk about liberty, you want to talk about the rights of the black body. How do you do these things when those rights are not being act enacted on by those very bodies? And how do you explain that when those bodies actually diminish and destroy the bodies of others? Mm. It's in that, violent, in that, that extreme violence is not simply peculiar to my country. That widening abyss of race, class, and education is global. Mm. Um, and it might not have caught up yet to the same degree as it's completely hit us, but it will. But people were running away from it. And um, I just was deeply, I've been actually deeply upset because by, it's not my nature to hurt people. It's my nature to deal with a difficulty and to deal with it in the public context. And I am actually deeply sad that those PhD students are not here to address and to develop these issues further because it's central to their own intellectual and their moral and their human development as well. Well, I think they'll, I think. You know, I think everybody does these things in their own way. Uh, you know, they'll read the book, they'll engage with the ideas, they'll navigate their own uh, pathways in relation to their own projects, and you know, and, and you know, and that's that's fine. I think, um, you know, I, I, do, I, I do. I think it's absolutely fine. Um, but I want to just look at some other projects with sure. you. Yeah, <laughs> in relation to what we were just talking. I mean, Kalamai uh, always puts his finger right on it. And this is what you're just referring to. I mean, one of the things that I find so incredibly painful about um, positioning myself in relation to South Africa and trying to write in relation to South Africa right. and being constantly positioned, as you say, That's within cool. these antinomies called blackness and whiteness, yeah. which are inventions in any case, mm. um, as we know. But nevertheless, they operate as uh, facts on the ground. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I think Kaname is very clever at... Um, you know, just 
just playing with that and you 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 know you draw that out so mm. i just wanted to show this because mm. that's one of the one of the things we're all dealing with but this is but he's been demonized yeah this is the issue yeah. he's been demonized in in the country and I'm, what i'm saying that moral prurience is here as well mm. it's not simply there absolutely it's here and what you can and cannot say political correctness is one of the most toxic so the problems we're experiencing right now, that's what I was trying to explain, that your generation has unfairly been afflicted by political correctness, and that will impede your ability to feel or think effectively if you allow yourself to become a victim to it. That's all I was trying to say, to be very, very careful. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I'd never heard of Georgina Quatrix, and she was another one of these artists who... <laughs> Who um, uh -huh. you know? Who you bring out yeah. from somewhere that nobody's you know? Certainly, I have. Yeah. I don't know how well known yeah. she is in South Africa. Well, she's growing, she's booming. Um, what generation is she? She's probably in her late thirties now. She's a beaming, wonderful, dynamic, and joyous creature. And um, you can see you that know, from these works. And these, these, are, these, these are some, some of her paintings. And, um, and I just adore, I adore this, the, 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 this, you know, just the love. The thing is, it's, you know, we write about art, but I mean, you need to write with love. Painting is my favorite of, of all my mediums, the one I love most for, just because of its incredible tactility and its fragility, you know, it's a, as a medium, and, it's, and you can feel the zest and the risk-taking that's involved in, in the way she's painting. Um, there's a word I came across which you know, um, fugly, fucking ugly, you know? So I mean, I talk about the fugly, and I really, and then there's this, there's this British writer who's hilarious, I've forgotten his name, he's written a book called Isn't This Fun? And, um, and I just, you know, there's, there's something you have here in London thing, the, the, the naked bicycle ride. Yes. Yeah, so I talk about the naked bicycle ride, and I talk about the paintings, and about the artist, the crowd, and basically the, the key, the key, um, the key thinker, because there's always a key thinker to the process. Um, it was Ben Oakley, if I remember correctly, or was it not? No, 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 it's actually, it's actually, um, forgive me, it's Rabelais. Oh, yes, it's it Rabelais, right. and, um, um, who, um, uh, Bartin, yeah. Bartin writes at great length about the carnivalesque, with particular re reference to Rabelais. But the, the quotation is, um, See, seeing how sorrow eats you, defeats you, I'd rather write about laughing than crying, for laughter makes man human and courageous, which gets back to the whole importance of joy. And I see that in her work. Um, and there's a daringness formally, but there's also daringness, a daring in terms of her imagination and her love of, of just sheer living mm. and expressing that life in, in and through her works. Again, the importance of this, because what I find so toxic at the moment is statement art. Or art that tries to control itself and rein itself in and through and measure itself according to some prescribed ideology. The artwork represents this. The artwork means this. And it gets in the way of what art is supposed to do, you know, which is to liberate us from, from, from the burden of ideology. Um, and I think this is what she does brilliantly. At the same time as 
it's so it's so referential, isn't it? Because it's so much about the history of certain traditions of painting. That's true too. And, yeah, yes, and and absolutely. that's one of the things that comes through the book as well is your interest in a very particular kind of painting. And I know you're writing a book now on neo-expressionism in South African painting, mm -hmm. but obviously that gestural, tactile, um, very knowing, mm -hmm. and quite historical in, ma in many ways, but a painting that gives the effect of being emotive and expressive. Yes, it's yes. extremely yes. considered and carefully yes. calibrated. Yes. I mean, that's point. obviously the kind of painting that really yeah. gets to you. Yeah. It gets to me because I suppose I cannot deal with, 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 with ironically, with what Tama asked me to write about, dissimulation. Mm. You know, I, art that is simulacral or, or dissimulates, uh, you know, this work, it allows very little room for that. Yes, it's, it's working within a history. So at that level, it's a kind of simulation. It's echoing the methods and yeah, techniques. Yeah, I mean, you can't look at that without thinking of Picasso or yeah. Kerning or exactly. whatever. So it's the just echoes are there. But you don't, you don't get stuck in the echoes. Mm. Somehow you're free in the moment of the painting, or in our case, the witnessing, experiencing of the painting. And that's, again, what I feel is important. I mean, the woman, what the hell is that green puppy doing on her forehead? <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, right there, the frontal sort of cortex. You know, what's going on there? I mean, this is, this is, I, mean, I, I have so much fun discussing and examining that. Um, and for me, the thing is about talking about art is about, as I said, about sharing art. You know? um, and the, the reason I was, I was, when we were at 154, there was Marion Bone. I heard that that was very good. Very good. Yeah. The, the two, two, yeah. two stands were excellent. And I, and I said to them, they've got to, they've got to get these artworks into public museums. You know, it's all well and good that private people buy art, but for us who can't afford it, we need spaces where we can see stuff. And you guys are incredibly blessed here in London in that regard. My goodness, we're really blessed in terms of access to such an incredible, wide-ranging, um, you know, life experience across centuries. And that should be the basis of so much, obviously, of your encounters with the art that you have. Whereas in South Africa, so much of the art that most people encounter is secondhand, you know? Mm -hmm. But luckily, what we do have is an astonishingly vibrant art culture. Mm -hmm. We have, I, I'm, I'm not wishing to be jingoistic in saying this, but I'm telling you, South African art just blows just about everything else out of the it's just unbelievably, immeasurably brilliant at so many levels, in so many mediums. And it has something to do with the, with the, with the psychic DNA of the country. Somebody asked me, because I went back at the age of 30, I spent the bulk of my life in Europe and North America prior to that, and I went back at 30. And I said, why are you going back? Why are you going back? It's because it is irresistible. It literally it, it, it inspired my mind so much. I, I pulled out so much out of being there for the last 32 years or whatever it's been, no, 20, 20, 20, 28 years yeah. I've been there. Um, and and what, what I've been able to do is synthesize, which is what Tamara was talking about, yeah. synthesize an immersion in a culture, yeah. but also at the same time bring to it a global consciousness yeah. and find ways to fuse the two. Yeah. So it became a perfect platform for me to think through um, my own ideas and values. Um, um, I mean, I mean I, yesterday, forgive me, am I hoping I'm speaking too, too yeah. much? I went, you know, I mean, I was, I was, I'm living around the corner and I'm trundling around those streets and I come across the, the School of Life artists. And I just literally, my jaw dropped because, I mean, I mean, I, there's one book I love, especially, is by John Armstrong and Alain de Baton, it's called Art of Therapy. 
I find an incredibly useful book. Yeah. And I've used it, and for some reason, it just keeps popping up. And it's in here as well. Yeah. And so I went into this, this, these offices, and I saw all these books, books on calm, you know, books on love. I mean, I mean, at one level, it's toxically, simperingly, sort of, um, sort of you know, awfully sort of sweet and touchy-feely. But on another level, it's really potently empathic. So it's how you balance it and how you take all of that energy, use yeah. what's good in that energy. And so, for example, I don't do what you probably do a lot of is go online and listen to stuff. So um, I can't stand looking at Alain Vuitton, let alone listening to him talk without feeling the incredible tedium of this joy that it's trying to generate. It's unbearable. bores me to death. Um, but the point of the matter doesn't mean that the principles are not important. Well, you have to counter it with Anne Carson, who, of course, immediately says okay. art is not with therapy. Who? Anne Carson, the fantastic Canadian poet. Okay, she, I don't know Anne Carson. I've you got to must, find you must look at Anne Carson, okay. because she comes out emphatically against that, that art is not therapy, is her most uh, mm -hmm. famous statement. So it would be nice to counter uh -huh. the one with the other. But, yeah, have a look okay. at Anne Carson. You can even Google her... Um, she, she did an article, there's actually an interview with The Guardian where mm. she says art is not therapy and argues for that. Um, but, you know, she's an amazing poet. So, okay. Yeah, this, this from your And um, ah. what is the time, Albert? I don't have a watch on, so um, I, I can't monitor how we do it. Sorry? Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to flip through and I just want to open it up because people might have other sure. questions. Just to show you some of the other sorts of things that, that Ashraf's dealing with. Mm. And, um, you know, Peter Hugo, as many of you will well, no, is a is a controversial figure. Who's often positioned as a kind of white artist, who's um, you know spectacularizing black bodies, etc. But uh, Ashraf talks very beautifully about one particular project around children, where he juxtaposes these child portraits in uh, Rwanda with um, child portraits in South Africa, and then you do something really amazing, which is you refer to the Ingrid Yonker poem that Mandela read in his inaugural speech, and I found online, believe it or not, um, the Sumer I wonder if it's going to work. I found her reading it. This is, can we, how does this, wow. is, I wonder if it's working there. Let's see whether, this is, Madi uh, this is, this is Mandela reading the Ingrid Yonker poem. Oh, can we get it through the speakers, Albert? I think it's through the speakers. Okay. So, um, I've got the words of the poem too, but he does a sort of... Um. Doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Just let's play it because you'll hear you'll just hear a bit of an echo. Because the echo Oh, sorry, I can't do that. I wanted to show you the words. Okay, sorry, I can't. Sorry, Albert, I, I moved it on. Um, there's a little bit of an echo, but you'll, you'll get the poem anyway. And, it, and it's wonderful. Uh, I love that. We said she's both an African and an Africana. And this goes back to your thing about some, some alternity, because in this world of Manichaean oppositions, when you're either black or white, sorry, Albert, I moved it. If you wouldn't mind switching it on again. You know, you're either black or white, you can't be both simultaneously. You're either African or European, you can't be both simultaneously. Can you be a European African and an African European and white? You know, all these things together. And Mandela at that moment, which is this moment of great promise and potential to move into a post-racial world, articulates this. But of course now he's, you know, completely dissed by younger generations, a great big soft, wet, you know, 
whatever. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting moment to listen to his voice. Thank you, Albert. But just when, when, when he delivered the poem. In the dark way, in the dark way, when all sing for hope, sing for hope in our country, in our country. When many refuse, when many refuse to hear her resonant voice, voice, she took her own mouth, her own mouth. She committed suicide. She was both on the hospital, hospital and on the hospital. Her name is Andre Jones, Andre Jones. She wrote, she wrote, and I wrote. The child, the child is not there, is not there. The child, the child lifts his fist, lifts his fist against his mouth, against his mouth, who sounds awful, who sounds awful. The child is not there, the child is not there. Not at one, not at one, not at one, not at one. Okay, I'll just, let's just read it. Just, just, yeah, but, oh, sorry. Oh, so this is the poem. The child is not dead, neither at Nanga, nor at Nyanga, nor at Orlando, nor at Sharpeville, nor at the police station in Philippi, where he lives with a bullet in his head. The child is the shadow of the soldiers on guard with guns, saracens, and batons. The child is present at all meetings and legislations. The child peeps through the windows of houses and into the hearts of mothers. The child who just wanted to play in the sun at Nyanga is everywhere. The child who became a man treks through all of Africa. The child who became a giant travels through the whole world without a pass. A pass referring to the identity document that black South Africans had to have um, during apartheid. So this, you know, indicates this moment of, uh, of course, she wrote it in the 1960s, Ingrid Bianca, but Mandela invokes it in the 90s. And, and as you say, Ashraf, you always find, uh, you find a text, you find a philosopher, you find something that helps you mm. to unravel some of the complexities of the work. And right. in this particular chapter, that really helped me to see what it was that you think is going on in Hugo's project and to arrest him away from this very, what you see as very simplistic way of seeing him as the kind of white man exploiting the body of Absolutely. black Africans. Because it deeply concerns me again, I mean, why should now Hugo be defined as a, as a, as a white male voyeur, uh, spectacularized of a black oppression? I mean, I... Am I blind? Am I not seeing something? I mean, I recall when we walked through this exhibition and this particular work, which I actually own, and I was standing in front of it and literally, my eyes standing on end again. I just like, I literally stood and I looked into this boy's eyes. He's a feral kid from the, from the knives in the forest, you know, from this hippie family who did completely off the grid, you know, in this forest. And there he is with his feet clasped with a rock, you know, for me, the embodiment of Africa. And yet, he is not given a right to be considered that. According to whom? According to what law? What opinion? And what I was getting so fretful about, and which I remain fretful about, is the fact that more and more people are dismissing other people and contain them and putting them away in silence. And if you do that to a photographer like, like um, Peter Hugo, who might consider to be one of the most, if not the most important living photographer, you do that, what are you doing? You're doing enormous damage to the complexity of his work or the complexity of his eye. And I think Tamara is correct in this regard. One needs to create a greater fluidity and inclusivity and generosity in the way one looks and feels and engages with and debates about 
any given artwork, in this case, the representation of children. So what I do in this particular essay is I basically go back to the 18th century and do the, the first constructions, you know, that the child should be seen and not heard, and they break down that very dangerous sort of formulation and look at how that is containing and silencing the life and rights of children. Now, I argue that this is not what Peter Hugo is doing. But the complexity of the problem that I'm dealing with is that it's dealing with two different worlds. Rwanda, survivors of the genocide, and a post-liberatory youth in South Africa, who are markedly different, with different histories. And how this difference is, is, is revealed in the portraiture. So if you look at, for example, this bucolic vision over here, or this rustic vision over there, and you contrast that to the young girl, for example, in sequin dress, and lying with, it seems like a, a ditch now, on the edge of a precipice in this thick, lonely soil. The, the, the other images, like the other ones up there. They're, market, they're markedly different. There's something you know, very different and disturbing about this. But now, the argument is that all he's done is objectifying the black child's body. But what he's actually dealing with is trying to theatricalize a deep history of objection. You know, and look at it and force it as force us to look at it rather than sentimentalize it. Mm. And this is the, the thing, the brilliance of, 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 of Hugo's eye is that it's remarkably, it's two things. It's unsentimental, it's non-ideological, it suspends politics, and it opens up the human dimension. And he does this uncannily, perhaps his best series of work, which is called Kin, K-I-N, which is largely a representation of poor white life in South Africa, and it's astounding to look at and, and consider. But it's, again, you realize if you do take the time to read my work, is that it's the history of humanism and the fight for humanism in an atrophied world, which is the one we're living for the moment, to hold fast to humanism. You know, um, I've noticed, for example, you've got uh, uh, something, what's it, uh, 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 the Black History Month? Yeah. I noticed the poster, yeah. Yeah. and we, uh, we took a photograph of it as a record. You know, at once, at once, a very noble enterprise, but also at the, at the same time, you know, a side order and a complex problem. You know, um, so how do you reconcile that paradox? You know, you have to address the problem, but the problems people don't know how to address problems very well anymore. They really don't. And this is the complexity of art, like Peter's Hugo's, who really does it brilliantly. So, so I, 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 know the, I know the time is going on, so I'm, I'm going to open and see if anyone's okay. got questions. But I just wanted to show you just a couple more things, that, just to give you some more flavours of what, of what um, Ashraf writes about a beautiful, beautiful essay around blackness um, and Zaneli Maholi, which is, is really wonderful. Um, and then I love this, this uh, uh, project of something that's like, yeah, because it's really, uh, you know, it really invoked the figures who are not in your book because yeah. he does these kind yeah. of almost parodic kind of homages yeah. to them. So the sort of non-canonical nature of the book, but these ghosts are still there yeah. in a way in his work. Well, but I'm also dealing with the problem of canonization and the catastrophe of pop. Yeah. Um, and how that happens and how inadvertently his art fails him because somehow just does not achieve the brilliance of his original collages. Yes. And how does that happen? And the failure is not the failure of the artist only, it's the failure of history. Yeah. 